This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Hello, this is Russell Moore. You're listening to my podcast, and this is a Cross and the Jukebox episode. We examine uh, music and culture and religion and roots through the grid of country music and some other forms of musical expression from time to time as well. And today, I would like for us to look at George Jones' song, He Stopped Loving Her Today. So, If you're not familiar with this song, maybe you want to pause right now and listen to it on Spotify or Apple Music or Amazon, wherever you listen to to music, because we're going to talk about some things that are unearthed uh, in this song about the human condition and about uh, why we need the gospel. Just a few weeks ago, I was having a conversation, uh, an interview with Jonathan Howe who was asking about, uh, at the end of the interview, we're talking about all sorts of of issues going on, and he said, uh, who is your favorite country music artist? And I found that that was a really hard question to answer because there are all sorts of different uh, aspects in terms of uh, just persona, Johnny Cash, Uh, In terms of uh, songwriting, uh, maybe Merle Haggard. In terms of soulfulness of voice, Loretta Lynn, George Jones, there could be any number of of categories. Songwriting, Chris Christopherson. And we'll we'll talk about that later. You, You cannot excel Chris Christopherson. This interviewer said Taylor Swift. We, we, We won't even discuss that right now. But in terms of if you ask most people who know country music, what's the greatest country music song of all time? There are going to be some people who are going to say, um, I'm so lonesome I could cry, Hank Williams, or a couple of other contenders. But this song that we're talking about today will be in the list and probably would be at the top of most people's uh, lists. There was an entire episode of uh, Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History uh, podcast that talked about why is it that country music is uh, is sad and, and pictured as sad. And if you think about it, uh, when people who don't know a lot about country music try to explain it, they'll say, oh, it's just sad music about your dog died, your wife left, your car broke down, and so forth. That's really a tell that they don't really know this music. But as with anything else, there's a, there's a, a little kernel of truth in that. What what Gladwell did was to look at the top 50 uh, Rolling Stone pop songs in Rolling Stone magazine, popular music songs, and then he looked at the top 50 country music songs over a, you know, I don't know how long of a period it was, maybe 40 years. And what he found was that the the popular songs were almost always happy and upbeat uh, because they're talking about sex, love, romance, the, 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 those sorts of things. So they have a very limited range of what it is that they're talking about. But when you look at the country songs, you have, uh, you have a lot of sadness and tragedy mixed in with the joy 
And he was was looking into this to say, why is that the case? Why are so many country songs sad? And part of it is because they look at the totality of the human condition. And I would say it's because they look at the totality of the lifespan. So most of, I mean, I can think of some exceptions. Uh, Billy Joel's Miami 2017, uh, for instance, there would be a few others. A lot of Leonard Cohen stuff would, would be an exception. But a lot of it is focused upon late adolescence, and uh, and and the time right before and right after that in terms of the emotional focal point of popular music for all sorts of valid reasons. I mean, that's an intense time and a formative time in everyone's life. Country music, though, tends to cover the entire lifespan. And so one of the things that you eventually learn is that life is tragic. In, uh, in a lot of ways. And so that's one of the reasons. But Gladwell also said another reason is because country music lyrically is specific. So it's able to often elicit feelings of sadness and melancholy because it speaks of specifics that can enable uh, someone to identify emotionally there. I think there's a lot that can be learned about that in terms of preaching and teaching, but we'll talk about that later on. Uh, so th- this episode was talking to the writer of this song, uh, Buddy Braddock, who wrote it alongside of uh, Curly Putman, and-, and talking about the tragedy that he had faced in his own life, not just in terms of love, but in terms of losing a child and and, and so forth and says that behind this song was all of that. So when we're talking about George Jones, he stopped loving her today, he didn't write the song. He was given the song at a time when his career was pretty much on the rocks. Uh, I would really advise that if you're interested in these things, that you watch uh, Ken Burns and Dayton Duncan's uh, uh, docuseries that PBS uh, did on country music. And look at this section on uh, George Jones and specifically how not only was his life fragmenting, I mean, he was no-show Jones because of his substance abuse issues and his marital issues and his life breaking down. He wasn't showing up at, at shows. He also just wasn't, uh, wasn't on the radio at that point. He was someone who had kind of been put to the side. It was his, his time in the wilderness And Buddy Braddock came to him with this song that he had written. He stopped loving her today. And as they point out in the documentary and has been pointed out elsewhere, Jones didn't like it. He he sang it, but he said, nobody's going to buy that morbid song. He used a little bit saltier language than I can use here, but, but he thought it was a morbid song. But the song went to number one and has resonated for... Uh, 40 years now. And part of that is because when people think of this song, they they automatically think of uh, the biography of George Jones and Tammy Wynette. Uh, and of course, Tammy Wynette had been married to George Jones. They had this really public uh, romance and breakup and divorce and then would get back together for uh, for duets sometimes uh, later on and so forth. So when, when people hear the song, I think a lot of people assume George Jones is sitting down and he's writing this song about Tammy Wynette and to Tammy Wynette. And so that's one of the reasons it resonates. Another reason, though, I think is because 
there there is this almost M. Night Shyamalan twist. So if you think of, for instance, the movie The Sixth Sense, don't want to give spoilers here, but the movie's the movie's so old now that if you if you're worried about it being a spoiler, uh, skip ahead. But you're probably not. Uh, it turns out that the Bruce Willis character, who's the detective, has been dead the entire time. He is in fact a ghost. So there's that twist, and and then you're able to go back and look at the song, uh, look at the the movie from the very beginning, and see things you didn't see before. Well, this song is talking about someone who's grieving a loss. He said, I'll love you till I die. She told him you'll forget in time. And as the years went slowly by, she still prayed upon his mind. Now, I think almost everybody can identify with something like that, some some sense of, of longing and the language that's used here. He uh, is is pledging his love until he dies. She's saying, oh, you'll get over it. It's not me, a Jew, uh, whatever sort of language is, is given there. But she still prayed, P-R-E-Y, not P-R-A-Y, prayed upon his mind. So her memory, uh, or maybe more specifically, her absence is actually predatory. And that's that's why I think this song works. So it, it goes through sort of describing uh, how his life is experiencing this absence and and the presence in terms of her memory. Kept her picture on his wall. He went half crazy now and then. Uh, he still loved her through it all, hoping she'd come back again. And then he moves into that, what, what Gladwell talks about with the specificity. Kept some letters by his bed dated 1962. So it's a specific uh, date. He had underlined in red every single I love you. So you can actually see and feel the devotion that this man has for this woman. And then it twists. The The song starts talking about from the perspective of, of this narrator, I went to see him, but I didn't see no tears all dressed up to go away. First time I'd seen him smile in years. So if you don't know where this song is going, then you assume, oh, This is somebody who finally came to the place where, like she said, he would get over her and he would move on with his life until the song says he stopped loving her today. They placed a wreath upon his door, funeral wreath, and soon they'll carry him away. He stopped loving her today. The guy's dead. And so uh, the, the woman in this song was wrong when she said, you'll get over me just sort of naturally. The the man here was was right when he said, I'll love you till I die. So his love uh, lasts until that point, until he is dead. So the tragedy is he doesn't ever get what he wants, which is her. He's, he's gone. He's dead. Now, there are a lot of reasons why I think this song works, as we mentioned at the human level. I also think there's a lot of reasons why this song works at the gospel level and the way that the Bible defines why it is that we act the way that we do as human beings. And, and one of those reasons is love. If you think about what uh, what love actually is, there, there's an aspect of you. We talked about the contrast between pop music and, and country music before, but there's there's one thing that is consistent between the two of them. 
And that is, at least at some level, there's this understanding of love as wild, in, in the sense that love is not just willpower. Now, th- this idea of, um, I mean, you think of, I can't help it if I'm still in love with you. Go back to, to Hank Williams uh, and then Elvis Presley. And, and you think of the, the way that, uh, that that sort of language is used in all kinds of songs of all kinds of genres. And it can be dangerous, which is uh, one of the reasons why we spend a lot of time uh, saying love is a decision. And, and what we mean by that is love is commitment and love is fidelity. Because if all that you have is this sense of the wildness of love and that feeling of sort of falling, of being carried away, then what's going to happen is as love deepens, into something uh, stronger and more resilient, and that sort of newness and novelty of feeling uh, changes into something else, people often assume, well, then I'm not in love anymore. And sometimes people then confuse a sense of infatuation with love. I, I love this person, and that means that I have to break up my marriage or, or break up whatever situation I have and, and pursue this. Uh, so that's a dangerous aspect of it. But you can go too far with this understanding of love as a decision and and love as willpower. The Bible reveals that there's an aspect to love that is more than just willpower. You start with Adam in the garden who is is aching with a kind of absence here. It is not good, God says, for the man to be alone. We don't even know that that the man recognizes this absence. He he probably has the the same sense that you and I do in terms of that longing for God that Augustine talks about, or that longing for joy, as C.S. Lewis uh, would talk about. But we don't know how to articulate it. We we see it like. T.S. Eliot would would talk about in uh, the four quartets uh, in Little Getting and, and elsewhere of of just sort of signs and flashes that are there that we can't really articulate. Maybe that's the way that Adam experiences this, and then God resolves this by giving him this woman, and his response is to say, "This is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh." So this is more than just some sort of rational, well, in order to propagate the species, we're going to uh, have to reproduce. And in order to have a partnership in terms of the tending of this garden, we're going to have to be together. I'll talk about that more uh, on the uh, Genesis 2 episode of the of the Genesis series here on this podcast about about the creation of man and woman and what that means for you but that's that's fundamentally what's at the root of of love and that's one of the reasons why we can all resonate with the sense that the the man says I just can't get over her I, I can't get over her in this way and also what resonates with us is this sense of uh, jealousy. There's a, a jealousy here, and I mean that in the, in the actual definition, uh, dictionary definition. I, I don't mean by that the way that we sometimes use jealousy to mean envy 
or covetousness or, oh, I'm so jealous of you that you get to take a vacation to the beach and I wish I could. Uh, It's instead something that belongs to you or used to belong to you that is no longer there. And there's a sense of or is threatened to no longer be there. And there's just just this sense of loss uh, in that. Now, this, of course, can be creepy. I mean, we have all seen jealous husbands and jealous boyfriends and jealous girlfriends and jealous wives who have um, who have responded creepily. I mean, there, there are entire genres of horror movies about that uh, ex-boyfriend, girlfriend, ex-lover of some sort who is jealous and who is uh, threatening. We've, we've all uh, seen that in real life as well as in media. But in terms of, of jealousy, there's an aspect of jealousy that isn't warped, that is part of what it means to love. Uh, so when you hear uh, people advocating uh, polyamory, uh, for instance, and saying, well, jealousy is just not a part of our relationships because we've resolved that it, it wouldn't be. Or when you look at these uh, utopian sorts of communities that have been started over human history that said, well, everybody just belongs romantically and sexually to everyone else and, and you just shouldn't be possessive and you shouldn't be jealous, doesn't work ever. And it it doesn't work not because of the fall. It doesn't work because of creation. There's an aspect of love that carries with it this sense of a sense of committedness to one another. And when that's gone or when that's threatened, uh, it's really painful. So there's an aspect of it. I, I remember when Uh, my now wife and I were dating. We were in the early stages of dating. And I called her house one day, this was before cell phones, and her mother picked up the phone and her mother said, oh, she's not home yet, but the flowers that you sent to her, these roses are beautiful. I didn't send her any roses. And I spent the entire day thinking to myself, who is sending her roses? And I was just so upset about this and and beside myself about this until uh, Maria called later on and said, oh, she was she was joking around with you. Nobody sent roses. So she thought that would be funny to have me sit around and wonder uh, who else is is coming after this girl that I like. Well, that's uh, that's natural, not the joke. But the reaction is natural uh, to, to have that. And if it is pressed too far. It can lead people to feel like they're going crazy, or as this song says, half crazy uh, now and then. And and people can even act crazy just with the sense of, I don't want to lose you. I had uh, an elderly woman one time who was telling me about her late husband, and she said he never wanted her to wear uh, what he considered to be attractive clothes. He never wanted her to wear makeup. Uh, at all. Uh, he never wanted her to be in shape physically uh, at all. And the reason for it, she said, was because he was so jealous that he wanted to to try to keep her as much, a- as he would define it, unattractive as possible, what he would think would be unattractive to other guys, just to eliminate the the threat that she might leave him for somebody else. Well, that's really pathological. And that's a really unhealthy sort of relationship that 
that natural sense of jealousy has now moved into something that is capital J jealousy that is is very very different and so there's this uh, there's this sense of of jealousy here that has moved into loss and so if you think of uh, if you think of the way that the scripture presents love there's a pathological satanic sort of jealousy there's also a kind of jealousy as we mentioned before that's good So when God says, I am a jealous God, he's not comparing himself to some passive-aggressive, sulking person. He's talking about the fact that there's an exclusivity, a relational exclusivity that is important in terms of the covenant. And so that that's part of what of how God reveals himself to be. And so he he shows what that looks like in terms of the anguish with uh, think of for instance Hosea. Uh the the sense of uh, jealousy that Hosea has for this woman that uh, that he loves uh, and God comparing that to his relationship with Israel. So there there's something about the way we experience love and it's all twisted up by our finitude and by our sin and by everything else. But it points back to that. And this man in the song, uh, he can't just get over it just by telling himself that he should. And also when he says, I'll love you till I die. And the, the point of the song uh, saying, you know, I went to his funeral and there he is. He's He's smiling, but he's not smiling because of the way he feels. He's smiling because of the way the the mortician uh, moved his his face. He's dressed up not because he has something uh, good going on, but because they dressed him up in order to to see him off in terms of of death. And she's there. He looks out, and and she's there. She came to see him one last time. We all wondered if she would, and it kept running through my mind this time. He's over her for good. So death is the only thing that could end it. Well, that also is rooted in something that the Bible tells us. So think about Song of Solomon, uh, for instance. Song of Solomon 8.6, set me as a seal on your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy as, is as fierce as the grave. So love is created to be uh, as strong as death. There's there's a reason why we will say things like, "Well, that'll be the day that I die," or "Yeah, I'll die before that happens." It, it's death ends everything. Not not in terms of uh, our gospel hope, but in terms of from a human perspective, the the normal pattern of life. Death is the the terminal point to it. And specifically when you're talking about love in terms of covenant love in marriage, death ends that. So when Jesus says, uh, for instance, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Uh, as, as people, even if they're not very familiar with scripture, they've all heard that being said at wedding ceremonies. Death ends this, but it shouldn't be put asunder by anything else. Well, that's grounded in something that the Scripture reveals us uh, reveals to us about humanity. So Romans seven, for instance, uh, says Paul is writing about um, about life in Christ, and he says this: Or do you not know, brothers? For I'm speaking to those who know the law, 
that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So he, he's talking about that temptation to want to go back to the law and to, and to carry out the, uh, the, the ceremonial uh, requirements and the, the other requirements of the law. And he says the law is binding upon you only as long as you live, which any sort of law is that way. Uh, you, you would not say uh, the person who robbed me uh, has now died, and so I want you to go and arrest that person. He says, that person isn't there. It's just a corpse. He says, Paul says this, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. And he's, he's not here specifically uh, wanting to teach on marriage or on love. He's wanting to talk about what it means to be uh, in Christ, because he goes on to say, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So he says, you, you can't be bound to something when you're dead and you are dead to sin, scripture says, and therefore alive to the law. So it doesn't mean that sin doesn't exist, including in your life. It means you should consider yourself dead to it. You don't have any obligation to it anymore. So this sense of love lasting until death and death being this this ending point and, and severing point, uh, when I listen to this song, one of the things that comes to mind uh, usually is this really interesting encounter that Jesus has with the Sadducees in Mark chapter 12. Now, we're really familiar with all sorts of interactions that Jesus has with the Pharisees about should you pay taxes to Caesar, Jesus shows the coin, or uh, should you heal someone on the Sabbath day? All, all of those sorts of, of interactions. But the Sadducees, Jesus also had uh, interactions with, and the, the most important of them was in Mark 12, where the Sadducees, because they don't believe in resurrection from the dead, uh, they think that death is the end uh, of everything. They have a question for him, and they say, you know, you've got a woman, and she has a husband, and her husband dies, and then she marries another. Nobody would see anything wrong with that. She marries another guy. He dies. Then she marries another. He and they go through seven different guys, and they're they're building on the assumption you're you're not cheating on your spouse if your spouse is dead. But uh, what about in the resurrection from the dead? Does this mean that this woman is now married to seven husbands? And what they're trying to do. What the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and various other people are continually trying to do with Jesus is to, as the scripture says, trap him in his words to get him to say something ridiculous or something heretical. They, they want him in one of those two spots. So in this case, the Sadducees, if Jesus had said, well, I'm not, I'm not saying that there's a resurrection from the dead, they would be able to say to the people, now see, he doesn't even agree with this idea of resurrection from the dead, but of course he does. And if he said, well, yes, she's married to all seven of them, 
then they would be able to say, aha. So you have Jesus arguing, not just for multiple spouses, that happened in the ancient world, but a woman with multiple husbands didn't happen uh, in that context. And they would be able to say, see, if you go along with this, a gospel that Jesus is announcing, this kingdom that he's announcing, then you're signing up for something crazy. That's what they want to, to do. What Jesus does is to turn around and say, what they're talking about is not resurrection. They're talking about essentially a zombie uh, sort of existence where uh, everything just resumes exactly the way it is uh, at resurrection. And Jesus's picture of resurrection has both continuity and discontinuity here. And so he says, they're as the angels in heaven. And now, sometimes when people hear this, they get really distressed by it. And, and the reason they get distressed by it is because of the way that God has designed us to love so strongly. So, you know, a lot of times I'll be in a church or, or on a campus or somewhere, and if I'm talking about the kingdom of God, I know that one of the first questions that I'm going to get, usually from someone who's older and who has lost maybe a husband or a wife or a parent or a child, question will be, will we know each other in the age to come? And what they mean by that, I think, is are we still going to have an ongoing relationship with one another? And I also know somebody, usually a man, is going to ask, will there be sex in heaven? Now, behind both of those questions is really the same kind of assumption, and the assumption is not rooted in anything evil. It's rooted in something good. The The assumption is, am I going to be losing something in the kingdom of God? And so when Jesus says they will be as the angels in heaven, he is not saying that uh, all of the uh, relationships and all of the back history that you have had is now completely wiped away and you're living this really ethereal sort of existence. He's saying there is a mission involved with the human being and it is different than the mission that you have in this present uh, time. And so there's, there's discontinuity, but there's also continuity. So Jesus turns around and says, but you're wrong about the resurrection. He says, and it's because you don't know the scriptures, nor do you know the power of God. He says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. That's what God said. He said, you know that. You accept the Pentateuch, the first five books uh, of the Bible. You know, you accept that. So when he says that, he says that he is the God, not of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. He still identifies himself with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, even though they are corpses at the moment that he says this and continues to say it uh, repeatedly. And what, what's interesting here is that in every one of those cases, not only is the assumption saying, I am this God. Uh, indicates that they still exist. But also in every one of those cases, there's a, a relational history involved. Abraham is called Abraham, not Abram, because he's the father of many nations. He's the father of Isaac. He's the grandfather of Jacob. All of that still exists. So there's a continuity to history but there's a discontinuity in terms of the way that you experience life 
And God has not really revealed that to you, except to say you can't imagine uh, the, the weight of glory that is being prepared for you. You can only have these, these flashes and, and hints that God gives in Scripture. So there's continuity and discontinuity, and you see that also in the resurrection of Jesus. So you have Mary in the garden, and what's interesting is that Jesus calls her by name, Mary. This isn't a different person. This isn't somebody for whom all of that relational history is gone. He calls her by her name. She recognizes him. She knows him. And he says, don't cling to me because I've not yet ascended to my father. So there's continuity and there's discontinuity at the same time. Well, all of that really, the the way that we have an intuition of that, that then gets shifted around in the way we we see things and the way we feel things shows up in this song. There's a, a sense in which death is the only way that this can end, and there's a sense of lament and sadness over that that points to just how strong and durable and permanent his love for her was. So it resonates with people for a lot of reasons. I mean, one one of the reasons is because most people, they either know what it is to feel love or they know what it is to want to feel love, to imagine being in love. And also because almost everybody has had a broken heart. Now, a lot of times you get over it. So when she says to him, you'll forget in time, that's usually what happens. That's why we we usually say to people when a relationship doesn't work out, you'll you'll get over this this person, and usually we do. Uh, I look back at sort of little broken hearts that I had in adolescence. Uh, I married really early, uh, young, relatively speaking, in uh, in life for now. Uh, but before that, you know those those junior high and high school loves um, that that didn't work out. And there's none of them. I mean, I have to sit and sort of remind myself of what they were. And I can kind of look back and say, oh, that's that's really kind of, uh, kind of funny because I'm really glad that didn't work out. But at the time, it didn't feel that way. At the time, it felt awful. Everybody can identify with that in terms of love. And almost everybody can identify what it means to lose someone in death and all the regret that often comes uh, comes with that. What are the things that I should have said? What are the things that I should have done? And, and the dying can often feel like uh, abandonment. Uh, there, there are a lot of people who will say when they've lost someone that they love, I, I, I feel like they've, they've left me. And they know that rationally that doesn't make sense, but that's what it feels like to them. That's, this song communicates that uh, to, to anyone who has ever had uh, those sorts of, of feelings and those sorts of emotions and those sorts of experiences. The gospel, though, speaks to this universal human condition that is articulated in this song by acknowledging love is powerful Death is powerful, but death isn't the final word. 
For those who are in Christ Jesus, those who have experienced the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can put a wreath on the door, you can dress up the corpse or not, but there's another day coming. So the the message of love that is communicated in the gospel is a love that is more than biology. Love is strong as death. And as the New Testament will reveal even more clearly, stronger even. So when you see the, the power of love and the hurt that love can bring, the vulnerability that love can bring with it, the possibility of being rejected, the possibility of losing someone that's in this song, see that, but let it take you to the empty tomb and see behind all of that a message that says something like, he kept loving us today. And they rolled a stone from off the door and soon he'll carry us away because he kept loving us today. Thanks for listening to The Cross in the Jukebox. Let me know in the comments or by email what song you would like for us to discuss here. And it really helps us to get uh, this uh, content out to people. If you rate us and leave a review uh, for us on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. And we'll be back to talk about music and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Until then, onward. This is Russell Moore.